I think this is also a reason why manifestation is caught on as a strategy because it gives you this positive mindset. But I think we need to do away with the woo and the gobbledygook and remain in tune with actual science and actual rational thinking. Because once you open the door to magical thinking, bad things can happen. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. This episode follows up with my thoughts from my last interview with men's coach Kevin Scott. The title of the episode was, Can We Manifest Our Future? Similar to many life coaches these days, Kevin believes that if we can put our minds into the proper emotional state, the universe will bend to our wishes, and we will get riches coming to us. Here in the rational view, we understand that extreme claims require extreme evidence. After our our discussion, it was clear to me that it would be very difficult to scientifically test the claims of manifestation gurus, because they can always explain away any failures as being the fault of the manifester and not having properly arranged their emotional state and having doubts about the uh, riches coming to them. And this seems to be a general comment that it is unprovable as well. The belief in manifestation as a way to physically influence the universe rather than to just change your own internal perspective, which seems to me to be a more likely explanation of some of the successes Uh, seen by life coaches, the belief in manifestation seems harmless at first blush. But I want to dig into this magical thinking a bit and question the impacts on society. This is a job for the rational view. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app. Feel free to share it with your friends. Uh, Come join me on my Facebook group, The Rational View, and provide your comments. I'd love to hear from you. Manifestation. You've probably heard of it. Um, it's on all the self-help websites. Uh, the law of attraction is part of it. And this is uh, a magical thinking uh, that uses the words quantum a lot as a buzzword to say, yes, our consciousness can uh, collapse the wave function of the universe in a way that benefits us. Is it real? Privileged people believe in it. But is it just a mental defense mechanism to justify their amazing luck and social hierarchical advantages? There's a definite allure to the illusory sense of control that magic provides, with magical beliefs offering a helping hand in situations beyond our rational control. I think we all want to believe in magic. I certainly do. It's a struggle to remain rational in the face of illusions and coincidences that can um, make us feel like we are more in control. 
where does the idea of manifestation come from? So I did a little online research uh, after the podcast, and I found out that the beginnings of this movement lie in the American mind cure movement. And you can look that up on Wikipedia if you want. Proponents of this movement believed that all sickness originates in the mind. Consequently, right thinking has a healing effect. The American clockmaker Phineas Parkhurst Quimby asserted in the early 19th century that all disease is nothing but a false belief that manifests in the body in the form of physical symptoms. If we accept that our disease is in our minds alone, we can easily heal ourselves. This was followed in uh, later years by the first statements of what they called the law of attraction. Uh, and that was around the turn of the century, actually, between the 19th and the 20th centuries. It's had a, a revival recently due to uh, uh, a release of a book. But this is over a century old. These attractive thoughts continued to gain momentum. And in the early 20th century, they resulted in the mega bestseller, Think and Grow Rich, which was published originally in 1937, right after or during the Great Depression at the time of huge social unrest and inequity, just before the Second World War. Seems similar in many ways to the circumstances we find ourselves in today of, of inequity and unrest and wars. Is there evidence for manifestation? And what would it look like? This is a question that we asked on the last podcast. Experiments on conscious attention to change the quantum results of true random number generation generators have shown that over large sample sizes, the effects decrease from the ones that have been published in small sample sizes. And what that means is that um, publication selection uh, has dominated the small sample sizes, but as you uh, get larger sample sizes, these effects go away. And that tends to mean that they sit, the effects aren't real. Believers say it needs to be something you really want. And random number generators don't have the emotional sway of, of luxury and riches. And so the experiment was bad. We're not really testing manifestation when we're talking about sudden changes in random number generators. Okay. Well, what sort of things do people really want that could be testable? Well, let's, let's turn to medical issues. Sick people really have are motivated to get better. If there were a way to manifest things, then surely sick people who were convinced that they were getting the best treatment would be able to get better independent of treatment. But wait, the placebo effect exists. It's scientifically demonstrable and measurable. We have very good data that shows people can apparently manifest themselves better if they believe they are getting treatment. But this isn't for all, all diseases across the board. It turns out that the placebo effect really only works on specific conditions that are mediated in the brain, such as depression, pain, sleep disorders, irritable bowel symptom, syndrome, and menopause. So what does this mean in terms of evidence for or against manifestation. I think drilling down into the details of this, it seems that if manifestation is a thing, it doesn't work for anything that's mediated outside of the brain, such as asthma or major wounds, for example. 
In fact, in one study involving asthma, people using a placebo inhaler did no better on breathing tests than sitting and doing nothing. But when researchers asked for people's perception of how they felt, the placebo inhaler was reported as being as effective as medicine in providing relief. So the people fooled themselves into thinking that they were having an effect. There was no effect, medically, measurable effect, but they believed the act of doing something was making them better. So this, I think, is is where the root of manifestation comes in. So instead of giving evidence for a manifestation, this sort of placebo study shows that manifestation actually works on our perception of the external world and not on the world itself. There is evidence that optimistic thinking is better for us than pessimistic thinking. The positive mindsets and attitudes can, to a certain extent, lead to more success. Fewer health and relationship problems and generally better outcomes in life. So I think this is also a reason why manifestation is caught on as a strategy because it gives you this positive mindset. But I think we need to do away with the woo and the gobbledygook and remain in tune with actual science and actual rational thinking. Because once you open the door to magical thinking, bad things can happen. Positive psychologist Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar describes it thus. When you think of all you can be grateful for, when you take stock, you feel better. When you feel better, you become more open to and are more likely to notice and pursue positive experiences. You then have more to be grateful for, which in turn improves the quality of your life and so on. You can begin this positive spiral of happiness at any moment by choosing to reflect on the things for which you are grateful. When you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. So what do proponents believe is happening to impose their wishes on the material world? What, what are the explanations manifestors use? As far as I can tell from reading their online websites and talking to Kevin, they believe that they are somehow manipulating matter in a massive series of unconsciously directed quantum collapse events uh, that collectively work to bring the universe in line with their emotional state. And one can think of this as uh, some sort of a quantum uh, link with consciousness. And, you know, this falls in line with Roger Penrose's idea of the quantum mind and quantum collapse being mediated in the mind. And this is not an accepted, a generally accepted thing. This is highly speculative stuff, whether the mind is a quantum mediated concept is one, that's one aspect of, of the physics of mind that's being considered. But for manifestation to work, it's not only got to be uh, the mind interacting with quantum phenomena, you actually have to be able to impact quantum collapses outside of your brain. So not only is your mind having a quantum aspect, but you are aligning your mind to influence the probability of external events for everyone. Now, this isn't just many worlds where, you know, you find yourself uh, in one particular world more than the other. This is actually changing the events around you. So it's easy to see why this is popular. Perhaps 
these manifestors actually believe that their emotional control somehow works on the minds of others rather than on the physics of the, the rest of the world. Maybe there's some sort of mind control that they're doing that subverts the will of, of weaker minds to specifically enrich them. If you really think about it, the mechanisms seem very implausible. How can uh, a series of quantum events lead to you getting luxury items and richness? It seems very implausible when you think about the, the, the level of intent and knowledge of the universe planning out a way to get you a luxury item. There's no, you know, Schrodinger's Lamborghini in a box that's going to show up based on a single quantum event. You know, it take, it's very difficult to set up um, events that uh, quantum superpositions that affect real world objects in any way. There was just a report I saw um, on the, on the internet about uh, an experiment where they had a tiny sapphire that was put in into a superposition. The first time any macroscopic amount of matter has been placed into a superposition that, uh, that then relies on a quantum event. So to believe that, um, you're influencing such a large change chain of things to have such macroscopic impacts is very far out there. You know, extreme claims require extreme evidence and we just don't have the evidence and it can be relatively easily explained by positive thinking. Why is it popular? It's easy to see that not doing anything except wishing really hard for what you want is a lot easier than working really hard for it or going to school and getting a degree to get what you want. If you believe you won't get sick, then you don't need to worry about making difficult decisions on the evidence regarding vaccines and mask mandates. If other people die, it's not your fault. It's their fault for not having the right mental mindset. They were not wishing in the right way. It absolves one of, of responsibility. And I'm sure this is not a conscious thing on a lot of people's parts. This hasn't been explored. Um, it's nice. It's a good feeling that you have this magical power, this secret that others do not. But one problem with the magical thinking, especially in a real world where the magic isn't there, is that it devalues the work of people who actually make a difference and can detract from real solutions. Those who seek miracles find miracles. It's a statement about confirmation bias and not the prevalence of miraculous occurrences. Waiting for a magical fix is the equivalent of thoughts and prayers. It's doing nothing. It ignores socioeconomic and psychological reality and may even leave the more unfortunate people in, in other circumstances and less privileged feeling ashamed and guilty for not achieving their dreams. Many of us find these overblown promises of effortless transformation suspicious. But what is worse, these mind over matter doctrines are actually victim blaming to a certain extent. Ultimately, they hold those who suffer misfortunes are personally responsible for their sufferings. This includes cancer, rape, car accidents, acts of violence. Some proponents seriously suggest that all of life's calamities are caused by our failure to think positive thoughts and to transmit our cheerful requests for luxury items loudly enough into space. Now, this is not an across-the-board condemnation. I know many people are very good people and are just looking for this extra boost. So I want to dig in this podcast into 
what some proponents are thinking and what some proponents have published on these ideas and show that the ultimate end of magical thinking is harmful. Now, sure, the easiest example of magical thinking causing harm is, of course, the Salem witch trials and burning of uh, witches. I don't want to go back to that. Magical thinking leads to people thinking there's witches out there. It hooks into our ancient desire to guard ourselves against vulnerability and loss of, lock, vulnerability and loss of control. Why are these messages so popular now? When the current climate of political unrest, climate change, wars, pandemic, and financial inequity, the thought that you can just dream your way to wealth is very attractive. Overestimating our, our agency and underestimating the economic and social structures that are actually holding people back comes at a cost. When things don't work out the way we hope, we end up feeling guilt and shame and, oh, I'm not thinking properly. My th There's a problem in my head. If good things don't happen to us despite our best attempts to manifest them, does that mean our thoughts are wrong? What if we have scary thoughts and sometimes focus on the worst possible outcome? This leads to a spiral of depression for people who have negative thoughts, for the pessimists among us. Does that mean we're making bad stuff come true? Think about the impacts that that has. Trying to manifest change can have a significant negative impact on mental health, particularly for these individuals with negative thoughts. Attempting to stay positive all the time and focused only on positive thoughts is also probably not psychologically healthy. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but what if you have good reasons to be doubtful and good reasons to have negative thoughts? Suppressing these feelings and thoughts actually leads to an increase in negative feelings uh, based on my understanding of psychological research, which in turn can exacerbate or catalyze these mental health issues. Rather than using pseudoscientific methods of manifesting change, we can make positive shifts in our life by using the power of intention and positive, uh, positive thought. Intentions can help us focus on who we want to be, on our future self, and the actions that we're going to take to get there. And that is where coaching should end. Anyone that I think pushes beyond that is, is getting into woo and is a challenge to the rational view that we need, the rational thinking, rational policies. Positive intentions can help us take action with self-compassion rather than the sense of pressure that a failed manifestation can create. I was told after my podcast in a, in a Twitter comment um, that I was extremely patient <clears throat> in a frustrating interview. And perhaps that's true. But this is a difficult topic. And I want to also address the fact that we need to be patient and have a have humility when we're addressing these issues. I've talked about this in my other podcasts about how to deal, how to have conversations with people who don't have the same basic uh, thoughts and principles uh, underlying their worldview. Don't get angry at these people. Don't ridicule them. That fails from the start and it actually hardens their viewpoints. It, it creates a shell. 
Attacking them is a self-defeating approach if we want to convert them. And I think this is very important to talk about. And I want to, you know, I'm not immune from lining up a good flame when appropriate to someone who is being intentionally obtuse and trying to spread um, anti-rationality, as it were, anti-science. But in this case, I want to listen to the people who are claiming something, claiming manifestation and understand where they're coming from. I want to understand why they think this is happening, learn their motivations and their reasoning. Being overly aggressive, inflammatory, and condescending does not win converts. I want to, as an example, and this ties in a little bit to my uh, diet and um, medicine, food medicines uh, thread that I'm also um, in parallel doing podcasts on. A popular example is echinacea. This is a, a plant which is used in herbal remedies for the common cold. And I've seen a lot of people from the pro-science side applying um, studies that have shown no impact of echinacea as a hammer to people who are uh, naturalists, uh, naturopaths, that sort of thing, and saying, look, you're idiots. The science is, is settled. Echinacea does nothing. You're, you're just um, risking your health by taking these, these supplements. What, what's the truth? Is it true that echinacea does nothing? This ties in to how we must be patient and have a sense of humility. So this is mainly based on a heavily reported study from 2005, which tested several pure extracts of various portions of the echinacea plant of one species on one strain of rhinovirus. And it was a controlled experiment with something like 437 uh, people that were isolated in hotels and given fire. They were exposed to a cold virus and then they were given these ex they were given these extracts for seven days. They were exposed to a cold virus and then they were followed afterwards to see uh, if they were less likely to get the cold or if their symptoms were less likely or less uh, intense. So, Here's what the study says. In the conclusions of that study, the, and they didn't find any significant, statistically significant effects, okay? So the results of this study demonstrate that as tested, the putative active constituents of echinacea do not have clinically significant effects on rhinovirus infection or illness. There are several considerations for the generalizability of the results of our study, which attempted to correlate the phytochemical composition of echinacea extracts with clinical efficacy. A lot of big words in there, um, but it's not, ne they're necessary. I, I, I get a little bee in my bonnet about putting in unnecessary big words. It really just makes it less approachable for the general public. And then that means they can be misinterpreted by the media. The potential sources of variation in different echinacea preparations include plant species, the method of extraction, the part of the plant that is used, and perhaps even the location and season of cultivation. The polysaccharides and alchemides of echinacea have biological activity and are generally perceived as the active components of these treatments. It is conceivable, however, that other chemical constituents or combinations of constituents that were not tested in this study have important biologic effects. It is also possible, although unlikely, that echinacea is effective for the treatment of respiratory pathogens other than rhinovirus. 
Given the great variety of echinacea preparations, it will be difficult to provide conclusive evidence that echinacea has no role in the treatment of a common cold. Our study, however, adds to the accumulating evidence that suggests that the burden of proof should lie with those who advocate this treatment. So this is a very well-written conclusion, which shows that this is a specific case that we're adding evidence that echinacea does nothing in these particular cases. Very well-written, shows all the caveats. And so how is this reported in the popular media? How did everybody in the world hear about this? So here's the, the headline in the New York Times. Study says popular herb has no effect on cold. That's it, right? This was then used as a hammer by pro-science people in the tribe to bash on people who are using echinacea. And here, here's the text of the article. Echinacea, the herbal supplement made from purple cone flower and used by millions of Americans to prevent or treat colds, neither prevented colds nor eased cold symptoms in a large and rigorous study. And then it goes to an argument from authority. Dr. Stephen E. Strauss, director of the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, the government agency that sponsored the new research, says he, for one, is satisfied that echinacea is not an effective cold remedy. This paper says it will not preempt a common cold, and it stands on top of prior studies saying it doesn't treat an established cold, he said, adding, we've got to stop attributing any efficacy to echinacea. So that's a very definitive statement doesn't really uh, coincide with the conclusion of the paper, does it? As scientists, we need to have humility and admit that our tests are not proofs. A single scientific study is not a proof, it's evidence. We accumulate evidence, and as the weight of evidence builds up, we approach a decision. And yes, he's right that at the time there was no significant clinical evidence of effect from, from the, the few scattered studies that were done. But there were a lot of assumptions in the study and approach. It assumed that the pure chemical extracts in isolation were the important factors. It assumed that the effect on the single rhinovirus strain could be generalized to all respiratory tract infections. Maybe echinacea only affects coronavirus. Maybe it's not uh, across the board cure. Maybe it's a combination of things. It was not a resounding demonstration, just another brick in a wall of evidence. And people on both sides of the issue need to realize that. The widely publicized result here has been used uh, to poo-poo echinacea extracts and their use in the treatment of colds. However, people continue using it. I use it. And I find that for me, it has an impact. It eliminates my sore throat symptoms when I have a cold. Maybe it's a placebo effect. I agree that there's that the evidence is not clear. Maybe it's a placebo, I don't know. The science continues to pick away at these things. So, was the study in 2005 the last word? No. In 2015, a massive review of several echinacea studies was published, and it was titled, Echinacea reduces the risk of recurrent respiratory tract infections and complications, a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. So now they're using all of the published smaller studies and combining the results into one much more statistically significant assessment. So six clinical studies with a total of 2,458 participants were included in the meta-analysis. And here's the results. 
Use of echinacea extracts was associated with reduced risk of recurrent respiratory infections. So, so the relative ratio of those on echinacea to those without was 65%. So a significant effect with an uncertainty of uh, a 95% certainty range of 55 to 77%. And later on it says, three independent studies found that in individuals with higher susceptibility stress or a state of immunological weakness, echinacea halved the risk of recurrent respiratory infections. So this seems to be boosting up the response to recurrent infections by uh, the same virus. So maybe the first time you have it, it has no effect. And that was like a, a 50% uh, relative rate of recurrent um, infection in stressed or immunologically compromised individuals. Similar preventative effects were observed with virologically confirmed recurrent infections. 42% uh, relative risk. Complications including pneumonia, otitis media externa, and tonsillitis pharyngitis were also less frequent with echinacea treatment. Relative ratio of 50%. So these are significant results. The, the certainty range on that uh, for complications was from 38 to 66%. So it turns out that people, that the good authority from the Center for Complementary Medicine was hasty in saying that echinacea has no effect. And we need to recognize this as proponents of science. We need to have humility. We need to not drive away the people that we're trying to convince. And I think this is something that I've investigated in a lot of my previous podcasts on on social media war and uh, influencing and you know telling you that the other guys are not idiots. These are people that are sincere and have very similar core values to us. And what we need to do is we need to go to where they are, find out why they're there, and gently lead them back to rationality and away from magical thinking. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.